Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back for part two of our talk about punishing the robot. We are, we are back here to, uh, to, to tell the robot he's been very bad. Now, in the last episode, we talked about the idea of uh, legal agency and culpability for robots and other intelligent machines. And for a quick refresher on, on some of the stuff we went over, uh, we talked about the idea that as robots and AI become more sophisticated and thus in some ways or in some cases more independent and unpredictable, and as they integrate more and more into the wild of human society, there are just inevitably going to be situations where AI and robots do wrong and cause harm to people. Now, of course, when a human does wrong and causes harm to another human, we have a legal system through which the victim can seek various kinds of remedies. And we talked in the last episode about the idea of remedies that uh, the simple version of that is uh, the remedy is what do I get when I win in court? So that can be things like monetary rewards. You know, I ran into your car with my car, so I pay you money or it can be punishment or it can be court orders like commanding or restricting the behavior of the perpetrator. And so we discussed the idea that as robots become more unpredictable and more like human agents, more sort of independent and more integrated into society it might make sense to have some kind of system of legal remedies for when robots cause harm or commit crimes. Uh, but also, as we talked about last time, this is uh, much easier said than done. It's going to present tons of new problems because our legal system is uh, in many ways not equipped to deal with uh, with defendants in situations of this kind. And this may cause us to ask questions about how we already think about culpability and blame and, and punishment in the legal system. And so uh, in the last episode, we talked about one big legal paper that we're going to continue to explore in this one. It's by Mark A. Limley and Brian Casey in the University of Chicago Law Review from 2019 called Remedies for Robots. So I'll be uh, referring back to that one a good bit throughout this episode, too. Now, I think when we left off last time, we had mainly been talking about uh, sort of trying to categorize the different sorts of harm that could be done by robots or AI, intelligent machines. And so we talked about some things like unavoidable harms and deliberate least cost harms. These are sort of going to be unavoidable parts of having something like autonomous vehicles, right? If you have cars driving around on the road, like even if they're really, really good at minimizing harm, there's still going to be some cases where the, there's just no way harm could be avoided because they're cars. Another would be defect-driven harms. That's pretty straightforward. That's just where the, the machine malfunctions or breaks in some way. Another would be misuse harms. That's where the, the machine is used in a way that is harmful. And in those cases, it can be usually pretty clear who's at fault. It's the person who misused the machine. But then there are a couple of other categories that where things get really tricky, which are unforeseen harms and systemic harms. And in the case of unforeseen harms, uh, one example we talked about in the last episode was the drone that invented a wormhole. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people were trying to train a drone to move toward like a, a, an autonomous flying vehicle to move toward the center of a circular area. But the drone started doing a thing where when it got sufficiently far away from the center of the circle, it would just fly out of the circle altogether. And so it seems kind of weird at first, like, well, okay, why would it be doing that? But then 
what the researchers realized was that whenever it did that, they would turn it off and then they would move it back into the circle to start it over again. So from the machine learning point of view of the drone itself, it had discovered like a, like a time space warp that, mm-hmm. you know, so, so it was doing this thing that made no sense from a human perspective, but actually was, it was following its programming exactly. Now for an example uh, sort of a thought experiment of how this could become lethal. There's an example that is stuck in my head. I can't recall where I heard this, who presented this idea. And I kind of had it in my head that it came from Max Tegmark, but I did some searching around in my notes and some searching around in uh, uh, one of his books and I couldn't find it. Perhaps you can help refresh me. You remember, maybe you remember this, Joe, but the idea of the the AI that is running, deciding how much oxygen needs to be in a train station at any given time? Oh, this sounds familiar. I I don't know the answer, but a lot of these thought experiments tend to trace back to Nick Bostrom, so I wouldn't be surprised if, if okay. he's in there. But uh, but go ahead. All right. Okay. As I remember it, the way it works is you have um, you have this AI that's in charge of of making sure there's enough oxygen in the train station for when humans are there, and it uh, it seems to have learned this fine. And when humans are there to to get on the train, everything goes goes well. Uh, everybody's breathing fine. And then one one day. Uh, the train arrives a little late or it leaves a little late, I forget whichever it is, and there's not enough oxygen and people die. And then it turns out that the train was not basing its decision on when people were there, but it was basing it on a clock in the train station, like what oh, time it yeah. was. Um, and I may be mangling this horribly, but it, you know, another way of illustrating the point that machine learning could end up you know, latching on to shortcuts or heuristic uh, devices uh, that would just seem completely insane to a quote-unquote logical human mind, but might make sense within the framework of the AI. Right. They worked in the training cases, and it doesn't understand, because it doesn't have common sense, it doesn't understand why they wouldn't work in another case. Right. Uh, there was actually a real-world case that we talked about in part one where uh, the, there was a, an attempt to do some machine learning on what uh, risk factors would would make a pneumonia case admitted to the hospital have a higher or lower chance of survival. And one thing that a machine learning algorithm determined was that asthma – meant that you were uh, you were better off when you got pneumonia if you had mm-hmm. asthma. Uh, but actually, the reason for that, that, that isn't true. Actually, the reason for that is that if you have asthma, you're a higher risk case for pneumonia. So you got more intensive treatment in the hospital and thus had better outcomes on the data set that the algorithm was trained on. But the algorithm came up with this completely backwards uh, failure to understand the difference between correlation and causation there. It made it look like asthma was a superpower. Yeah. Now, of course, if you, you take that kind of short-sighted algorithm and you make it God, then it will say, oh, I've just got to give everybody asthma so, so <laughs> we'll have a better chance of surviving. The point is it can be uh, hard to imagine in advance all the cases like this that would arise when you've got a world full of uh, robots and, and AIs running around in it that are trained on machine learning. Basically, they're just a number of sort of soft Skynets that you couldn't possibly predict. Uh, you know, like the Skynet scenario being sort of like uh, robots decide that uh, want to end all war and, um, you know, humans cause all war, therefore end all humans, that sort of thing. Uh, but there are so many different, like, lesser versions of it that could also be destructive or annoying or just get in the way of effectively using AI for whatever we turn to, to it for. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. It, oh, to come to a, an example that is definitely used by Nick Bostrom, the paperclip maximizer. You know, a, a robot that is designed to make as many paperclips as it can, and it just it looks at your body and says, "Hey, that's full of matter. Those could be paperclips." <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That would be uh, that would be quite an apocalypse. Now, before we get back into the main subject and talking about this Limley and Casey paper with uh, with robots as offenders, there was one thing that was interesting I came across. It was just a brief footnote in their paper, but about uh, the question of what about if the robot is the plaintiff in a case? Uh, they yeah. said it's, it is possible to imagine a robot as a plaintiff in a court case uh, because, of course, robots you know can be injured by humans. And they, they cite a bunch of examples of news stories of humans just intentionally like torturing and being cruel to robots like uh, they, they cite one news article from 2018 about people just aggressively kicking uh, food delivery robots. Mm -hmm. And then they share another story. I actually remember this one from the news from 2017 about a, a Silicon Valley security robot that was just violently attacked by a drunk man in a parking garage. I, I don't remember this one, but I can imagine how it went down. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, uh, they say that in a case like this, th this is actually pretty straightforward as a property crime. I mean, unless we start getting into a scenario where we're really seeing robots as like human beings with their own like consciousness and interests and all that, uh, the, the attacks against robots are really probably just property crimes against the owner of the robot. It's like, you know, attacking somebody's computer or their car or something. Potentially, but uh, the, we'll get into some stuff a little later that, that I think shows some other directions that could go in as well, you know, um, you know, especially oh, when yeah, you yeah. consider the possibility of robots owning themselves. Uh, yeah, and, and that's obviously a, a very different world. I mean, where you get into the idea, like, does a robot actually have rights, um, which is not yeah. – that's sort of beyond the horizon of what's explored in, in this paper itself. This paper is more focused on, like – the kinds of robots that you can practically imagine within the next few decades. And, and in those cases, it seems like all of the really thorny stuff would probably be in robots as offenders rather than robots as victims of crimes. Right. But to your point, like the, the initial crimes against robot that we can, robots that we can imagine would be stuff like drunk people pushing them over, things like that. Yeah. Or just like a human driver in a human powered vehicle hitting an autonomous vehicle, you know, something right. like that. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, this is a very big paper and we're not going to have time to get into every avenue they go down in it. But I just wanted to go through uh, and, and mention some ideas that stuck out to me as interesting that they discuss. And one thing that uh, really fascinated me about this was that the idea of robots as possible agents in, in a legal context uh, brings to the fore a philosophical argument that has existed in the realm of substantive law for a while. Uh, and I'll try not to be too dry about this, but I think it actually does get to some really interesting philosophical territory. Uh, and this is the distinction between what Limley and Casey call the normative versus economic interpretations of substantive law. Again, complicated philosophical and legal distinction. I'll, I'll try to do my best to sum it up simply. So the normative perspective on substantive law says that the law is a prohibition against doing something bad. So when something is against the law, that means you shouldn't do it. And we would stop the offender from doing the thing that's against the law if we could. But since we usually can't stop them from doing it, often because it already happened, 
the remedy that exists, you know, that maybe uh, paying damages to the victim or something like that is a, is a, an attempt to right the wrong. In other words, to do the next best thing to undoing the harm in the first place. So basically getting into the idea of negative reinforcement. Somebody or something did something bad. We can't, we couldn't stop them from doing something bad, but we can try and, and give them stimulus that would make them not do it again, be that economic or otherwise. Well, yes, but I think what you're saying uh, could actually apply to both of these conditions I'm going to talk about. So I I think maybe the distinction comes in about whether whether there is such a thing as an inherent prohibition. So the thing that's uh, operative in the normative view is that uh, the thing that's against the law is a thing that should not be done, and thus the the remedy is an attempt to try to fix the fact that it was done in the first place. The The economic view is the alternative here, and the way they sum that up is there is no such thing as forbidden conduct. Rather, a substantive law tells you what the cost of the conduct is. Does that distinction make any more sense? Yes, yes. So it's basically the, the first version is doing crimes is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one is doing crimes is expensive. Yes. So it, the, the first is crime should not be done. And the second one is crimes can be done if you can afford it. Yes, exactly. So in Limley and Casey's words, quote, damages on this view, the economic view, are simply a cost of doing business. One, we want defendants to internalize, but not necessarily to avoid the conduct altogether. And now you might look at this and think, oh, okay, well, so the economic view is just like a psychopathic way of looking at things. And in a certain sense, you could look at that as like if you're calculating what's the economic cost of murder, then yeah, okay, that that's just like that's evil. That's like psychopathic. But there are actually all kinds of cases where thinking about the economic view makes more sense of the way we actually behave. And they they use the example of stopping at a traffic light. Ah, uh, yes. So to read from Limley and Casey here, quote Under the normative view, a red light stands as a prohibition against traveling through an intersection, with the remedy being a ticket or a fine against those who are caught breaking the prohibition. We would stop you from running the red light if we could, but because policing every intersection in the country would be impossible, we instead punish those we do catch in hopes of deterring others. So in this first case, running a red light is bad. You should not do it. And the cost of doing it, you know, the punishment you face for doing it is an attempt to right that wrong. But then they say under the economic view, however, an absolute prohibition against running red lights was never the intention. Rather, the red light merely signals a consequence for those who do, in fact, choose to travel through the intersection. As in the first instance, the remedy available is a fine or a ticket. But under this view, the choice of whether or not to violate the law depends on the willingness of the lawbreaker to accept the penalty. Uh, so in the case of a red light, well, that that might make more sense if you're like sitting at a red light and you look around and there are no other cars anywhere near you and you, you've got a clear view of the entire intersection and the red light's not changing and you think maybe it's broken and you're just like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to drive through. Well, if, if you reach that point where you're like, I think it's broken, that I feel like that's a slightly different case. But if you're just like, nobody's watching, I'm going to do it. Um, 
and 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 the the light isn't taking an absurd amount of time or longer than you're you're accustomed to. Yeah, I, I don't know how the uh, the belief that the light is broken would factor into that, but yeah, it is. I mean, one thing that I think is clear that in it's that in many cases there are people, or especially I think companies and corporations that operate on the economic view, and it is something that I think people generally look at and say, okay, that that's kind of grimy. Like it, like a company that says, okay, th- there is a fine for not obeying this environmental regulation and we're going to make more money by violating the regulation than we would pay in the fine anyway yeah. so we're just going to pay it. Yeah, you hear about that with factories for instance where yeah. uh, where there'll be yeah, there'll be some situation where the the fine is not significant enough to really be a deterrent it's just a for them breaking that that mandate uh, being called on it occasionally is just the cost of doing business. Right. Uh, so there's a funny way to describe this point of view that the authors bring up here that they call it the, uh, the bad man theory. And this comes from uh, mm-hmm. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who is a U.S. Supreme Court justice. Uh, and he's talking about the economic view of substantive law. Uh, and Holmes wrote, quote, if you want to know the law and nothing else, you must look at it as a bad man who cares only for the material consequences which such knowledge enables him to predict, not as a good one who finds his reasons for conduct, whether inside the law or outside of it, in the vaguer sanctions of conscience. Uh, And so they write, the measure of the substantive law, in other words, is not to be mixed up with moral qualms, but is simply coextensive with its remedy, no more and no less. It it just is what the remedy is. It's the cost of doing business. Now, of course, there are plenty of legal scholars and and philosophers who would dispute how Holmes thinks of this. Uh, But the interesting question is, how does this apply to robots? If you're programming a robot to behave well – you actually don't get to just sort of like jump over this distinction the way humans do when they think about their own moral conduct, right? Like you're not sitting when you're trying to think what's a good way to be a good person. You're not sitting around thinking about, well, am I going by the normative view of morality or the economic view of morality? (laughs) You know, um, you, you just sort of act a certain way, whatever seems to you the right way to do. But if you're trying to program a robot to behave well, you have to make a choice whether to embrace the normative view or the economic view. Does a robot view a red light, say, as a firm prohibition against forward movement? It's just a bad thing and you shouldn't do it to drive through a red light. Or does it just view it as a substantial discouragement against forward motion that has a certain cost? And if you were to overcome that cost, then you'd drive on through. Yeah, this is a great, great question. Because I feel like with humans, we're probably mixing and matching all the time. Yes. You know, perhaps even on the same uh, law-breaking behavior. You know, we may do both on on one thing and we do one on another thing and then the other one on on still a third thing. But with the robot, it seems like you're going to deal more or less with kind of an absolute uh, direction. Either they're going to be um, – either the, the law is is to be obeyed or the law is to be taken into your cost analysis. Well, yeah. So they talk about how the normative view is actually very much like uh, Isaac Asimov's Laws of Robotics, yeah. you know, inviolable rules. And the, uh, the Asimov stories do a very good job of demonstrating why inviolable rules are really – difficult to implement in the real world like you know the they the asimov explored this brilliantly 
And along these lines, the authors here argue that there, there are major reasons to think it will just not make any practical sense to program robots with a normative view of legal remedies, that probably when people make AIs and robots that, that have to take these kinds of things into account, they're almost definitely going to program them according to the, the economic view, right? Uh, they say that, quote, encoding the rule don't run a red light as an absolute prohibition, for example, might sometimes conflict with the more compelling goal of not letting your driver die by being hit by an oncoming truck. Mm-hmm. So the, the robots are probably going to have to be economically, uh, economically motivated to an extent like this. Um, but th- then they talk about how, you know, this gets very complicated because robots will calculate the risks of reward and punishment with different biases than humans, or maybe even without the biases that humans have that the legal system relies on in order to keep us obedient. Humans are highly motivated usually by certain types of punishments that like, you know, humans like really don't want to spend a month in jail uh, you know, most of the time, and you can't just rely on a robot to be incredibly motivated by something like this. First of all, because like it wouldn't even make sense to send the robot itself to jail. So you need some kind of uh, organized system for making a robot understand the cost of bad behavior in a systematized way that made sense to the robot as a as a demotivating incentive. Yeah, like shame comes to mind as another aspect of the, of all this. Like, right. how do you shame a robot? Do, do you have to program a robot to feel shame at being, uh, you know, made to give a public apology or something? Yeah. Uh, so, so they argue that that it really only makes sense for robots to look at re- legal remedies in an economic way. And then they write, "quote It thus appears that Justice Holmes' archetypical bad man will finally be brought to corporeal form, though ironically not as a man at all. And if Justice Holmes' metaphorical subject." is truly morally impoverished and analytically deficient as some accuse it will have significant ramifications for robots but yeah thinking about these incentives it it gets more and more difficult like the more you try to imagine the particulars humans have self-motivations you know pre-existing motivations that can just be assumed in most cases humans don't want to pay out money humans don't want to go to jail how would these costs be instantiated as motivating for robots you would have to you would have to basically force some humans, I guess, meaning the programmers or creators of the robots to instill those costs as motivating on the robot. But that's not always going to be easy to do because, okay, imagine a robot does violate one of these norms and it causes harm to somebody. And as a result, the court says, okay, uh, someone, you know, someone has been harmed by this negligent or failed autonomous vehicle. And now there must be a payout. Who actually pays? Where is the pain of the punishment located? Uh, a bunch of complications to this problem arise. Like it gets way more complicated than just the programmer or the owner, especially because in this age of artificial intelligence, there is a kind of uh, there is a kind of distributed responsibility across many parties. The authors write, quote, Robots are composed of many complex components, learning from their interactions with thousands, millions, or even billions of data points, and they are often designed, operated, leased, or owned by different companies. Which party is to internalize these costs? The one that designed the robot or AI in the first place, and that might even be multiple companies. The one that collected and curated the data set used to train its algorithm in unpredictable ways. The users who bought the robot and deployed it in the field. And then it gets even more complicated than that because the authors start going into tons of 
ways that we can predict now that it, it's unlikely that these costs will be internalized in commercially produced way, robots in ways that are socially optimal. Because if, if, if you're, you're asking a corporation that makes robots to take into account some type of economic disincentive uh, against the robot behaving badly, other economic incentives are going to be competing with those disincentives, right? Uh, so the authors write, for instance, if I make it clear that my car will kill its driver rather than run over a pedestrian if the issue arises, people might not buy my car. The economic costs of lost sales may swamp the costs of liability from a contrary choice. In the other direction, car companies could run into PR problems if their cars run over kids. Put simply, it is aggregate profits, not just profits related to legal sanctions, that will drive robot decision making. Hmm. And then there are still a million other things to consider. I mean, one thing they talk about is the idea that even within corporations that produce uh, robots and AI, uh, the the parts of those corporations don't all understand what the other parts are doing. You know, they say uh, workers within these corporations are likely to be siloed in ways that interfere with effective cost internalization. Uh, quote, machine learning is a specialized programming skill and programmers aren't economists. Uh, and then they, they talk about why, in many cases, it's going to be really difficult to answer the question of why an AI did what it did. So can you even determine that the AI, say, was was acting in a way that wasn't reasonable? Like, how could you ever uh, fundamentally examine the state of mind of the AI well enough to, to prove that the decision it made wasn't the most reasonable one from its own perspective? But then another thing they raise, I think, is a really interesting point, and this gets into one of the things we talked about in the last episode, where thinking about culpability uh, for AI and robots actually makes us uh, – is going to force us to reexamine our ideas of, of culpability and blame when it comes to human decision-making. Uh, because they talk about this, the idea that, quote, the sheer rationality of robot decision making may itself provoke the ire of humans. Now, how would that be? It seems like we would say, OK, well, you know, we want robots to be as rational as possible. We don't want them to be irrational. But it is often only by carelessly putting costs and risks out of mind that we are able to go about our lives. Uh, for example, People drive cars, and no matter how safe of a driver you are, driving a car comes with the unavoidable risk that you will harm someone. Uh, they write, quote, any economist will tell you that the optimal number of deaths from many socially beneficial activities is more than zero, were it otherwise, our cars would never go more than five miles per hour. Indeed, we would rarely leave our homes at all. Even today, we deal with those costs in remedies law unevenly. The effective statistical price of a human life in court decisions is all over the map. The calculation is generally done ad hoc and after the fact. That allows us to avoid explicitly discussing politically fraught concepts that can lead to accusations of trading lives for cash. And it may work acceptably for humans because we have instinctive reactions against injuring others that make deterrence less important. But in many instances, robots will need to quantify the value we put on a life if they are to modify their behavior at all. Accordingly, the companies that make robots will have to figure out how much they value human life, and they will have to write it down in the algorithm for all to see, 
at least after extensive discovery, <laughs> uh, I think referring to like, you know, what the courts will find out by looking into how these algorithms are created. Uh, and I think this is a fantastic point. Like, in order for a robot to make ethical decisions about living in the real world, it's going to have to do things like put a price tag on, you know, what kind of risk to human life is acceptable in order for it to do anything. And we don't, and that seems monstrous to us. It does not seem reasonable for any percent chance of harming a human, uh, of, of killing somebody to be the, an acceptable risk of your day-to-day -day activities. And yet it actually already is that, you know, it always is that way whenever we do anything, but we, we just like have to put it out of mind. Like we can't think about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, like, what's the alternative, right? A programming monstrous self-delusion into the self-driving car where it says, I will not get into a wreck on my uh, on my next route because I cannot, that cannot happen to me. It has never happened to me before. It will never happen, you know? Right. <laughs> These sorts of, you know, ridiculous, uh, it, they're not even statements that we make in our mind. It's just kind of like assumptions, like that's that's the kind of thing that happens to other drivers and it's not going to happen to me, even though we, we've all seen the, um, you know, the statistics before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think this is a really good point. And uh, so in this case, the robot wouldn't even necessarily be doing something evil. In fact, you could argue there could be cases where the robot is uh, behaving in a way that is far safer, far less risky than the average human doing the same thing. But the very fact of its clearly coded rationality reveals something that is already true about human societies, which we can't really bear to look at or think about. Uh, so another thing that the authors explored that I, I think is really interesting is the idea of how robot punishment would make – like directly punishing the robot itself, uh, whether, how that possibility might make us rethink the idea of punishing humans. Uh, now, of course, it's just the case that whether or not it actually serves as any kind of deterrent, whether or not it actually r rationally reduces harm, it may just be unavoidable that humans sometimes feel they want to inflict direct harm on a perpetrator as punishment for the crime they're alleged to have committed. And that may well translate to robots themselves. I mean, you can imagine we, we've all, I think, raged against an inanimate object before we wanted to kick a printer or something like that. Uh, and we talked in the last episode about uh, some of that psychological research about how people mindlessly apply social rules to robots. The authors here write, certainly people punch or smash inanimate objects all the time. Juries might similarly want to punish a robot, not to create optimal cost internalization, but because it makes the jury and the victim feel better. The authors write later toward their conclusion about the idea of directly punishing robots that, quote, this seems socially wasteful. Punishing robots not to make them behave better, but just to punish them is kind of like kicking a puppy that can't understand why it's being hurt. The same might be true of punishing people to make us feel better. But with robots, the punishment is stripped of any pretense that it is sending a message to make the robot understand the wrongness of its actions. Now, I, I'm pretty sympathetic personally to the point of view that a lot of punishment that happens in the world is not actually uh is not actually a rational way to reduce harm but just kind of like is is uh you know 
if it serves any purpose, it is the purpose of the emotional satisfaction of people who feel they've been wronged or people who want to demonstrate moral opprobrium on on the offender. But uh, I, I understand that, you know, in some cases you could imagine that punishing somebody serves as an object example that deters behavior in the future. And to the extent that that is ever the case, if it is the case, could punishing a robot serve that role? Could actually inflicting, say, like like punching a robot or somehow otherwise punishing a robot serve as a kind of object example that deters behavior in humans, say, say the humans who will uh, program the robots of the future? Hmm, it's yeah. a weird kind of symbolism to imagine. Yeah. I mean, when you start thinking about the, you know, the, the ways to punish robots, I mean, you, you think of some of the more ridiculous examples that have been uh, brought up in sci-fi and sci-fi comedy, like robot hells and so forth, mm-hmm. um, and or the, just the idea of even destroying or deleting uh, a robot that is faulty or misbehaving. Uh, but but maybe you know maybe it ends up being something more like I think of game systems right, right. where say if you accumulate too many of uh, say madness points your I don't know your movement is cut in half that sort of thing okay. and then that has a ramification on how you play the game and to what extent you can play the game well mm-hmm. and therefore like playing into the economic model you know it could uh, it could have sort of artificially constructed but very real consequences on how well a system could behave, you know? But then again, you could imagine ways that an AI might find ways to to circumvent that and say, well, if I play the game a certain way where I don't need to move at normal speed, I can Mm -hmm. just move at half speed, but have the benefit of getting to break these rules, Mm -hmm. then who knows? It just, I feel like it, it, it seems an inescapable maze. Yeah. Well, that's that's interesting because that is edging toward another thing that the authors actually talk about here, which is the idea of a robot death penalty. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and this is funny because I uh, again, because personally, you know, I I see a lot of flaws in in applying a death penalty to humans. I think that is a a very flawed uh, uh, judicial remedy. But I can understand a death penalty for robots. <laughs> like, uh, you know, robots don't have the same rights as human uh, defendants. If a robot is malfunctioning or behaving in a way that is so dangerous as to suggest it is likely in the future to continue to endanger human lives uh, to an un- unacceptable extent, then, yeah, it seems to me reasonable that you should just turn off that robot permanently. Okay. But but then again, it, then it raises the question, well, what about – what what led us to this malfunction? Is there something in the the system itself that needs to be remedied in order to prevent that from happening again? That's like, a very good point. And the authors bring up exactly this concern. Uh, yeah. So they say, well, then again, so a robot might not have human rights where you would be concerned about the death penalty for the robot's own good. But you might be concerned about what you are failing to be able to learn from allowing the robot to continue to operate like that that could help you refine AI in the future, maybe not letting it continue to operate in the wild. But I don't know, keeping it uh, operative in some sense, because like whatever it's doing is something we need to understand better. So you end up with a robot prison instead of a robot (laughs) death penalty. Um, Yeah, And of course, the the human uh, comparison to be made is is equally as as frustrating because you end up with scenarios where you'll have um, a society that's very pro death penalty. uh, But then when it comes to 
to doing the same sort of back work and saying, well, what led to this case? Right. What were some of the systematic problems, uh, cultural problems, societal problems? I don't know. You know, well, whatever it is that, that led to this case that needed to be remedied with death, should we correct those problems too? And in some cases, the answer seems to be, oh, no, we're not doing that. We'll just, we'll just do the death penalty as is necessary, even though it doesn't actually prevent us from reaching this, this point over and over again. I mean, I feel like it's one of the most common features of the tough-on-crime mentality that it is resistant to the idea of understanding why what led a person to commit a crime. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've heard – I'm trying to think of an example of somebody. But, I mean, you've heard the person say, oh, uh, you know, oh, you're just going to give some sob story about what happened when he was a child or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, I've definitely encountered that that uh, that counter argument before. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I I think we're probably on the same page that it it really probably is very useful to try to understand what are the common underlying conditions that you can detect when people do something bad, and and of course the same thing would be true of robots. Right, and it seems like with robots, it you, there would potentially be room for true rehabilitation. With, right. uh, with with these things. If not, I mean, certainly you could look at it in a software-hardware scenario where like, okay, the software's, something's wrong with the software. Well, delete that, put in some, some healthy software, um, but keep the hardware. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's, in a way, that's rehabilitation right there. It's a sort of rehabilitation that's not possible with humans. We can't wipe somebody's mental state and replace it with a new factory clean mental state. You know, we can't go back and edit someone's uh, memories and traumas and and what have you. Uh, But with machines, it seems like we would have more ability to do something of that nature. Yeah, though, uh, this is another thing that comes up. And I mean, of course, it probably would be useful to try to learn from failed AI in order to better perfect AI and robots. But uh, on the other hand, in in basically the idea of trying to rehabilitate or reprogram robots that do wrong, uh, the authors point out that there are probably going to be a lot of difficulties in enforcing, say, the the equivalent of court orders against robots. So one thing that is a common remedy in in uh, legal cases against humans is you might get a restraining order. You know, you just, you need to stay fifty feet away from somebody, right? Uh, fifty feet away from the plaintiff, or something like that. Or you need to not operate a vehicle or you know something. There will be cases where it's probably difficult to enforce that same kind of thing on a robot, especially on robots whose behavior is uh, determined by a complex interaction of rules that are not explicitly coded by humans. So you know most AI these days is not going to be a series of if-then statements written by humans, but it's going to be determined by machine learning, which can to some extent, be sort of reverse engineered and and somewhat understood by humans. But the more complex it is, the harder it is to do that. And so there might be a lot of cases where, you know, you say, okay, this robot needs to do X. It needs to obey, you know, stay 50 feet away from the plaintiff or something. But the person, whoever's in charge of the robot might say, I don't know how to make it do that. Hmm. Or the possibly more tragic or funnier example would be the it discovers the equivalent of the, uh, the the drone with the wormhole that we talked about in the last episode, right? Where it's a, the robot is told uh, to keep 50 feet of distance between you and the plaintiff. Robot obeys the rule by lifting the plaintiff and throwing them 50 feet away. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, so to read another section from Limley and Casey here, they write, to issue an effective injunction that causes a robot to do what we want it to do and nothing else requires both extreme foresight and extreme precision in drafting it. If injunctions are to work at all, courts will have to spend a lot more time thinking about exactly what they want to happen and all the possible circumstances that could arise. If past experience is any indication, courts are unlikely to do it very well. That's not a knock on courts. Rather, the problem is twofold. Words are notoriously bad at conveying our intended meaning, and people are notoriously bad at predicting the future. Coders, for their part, aren't known for their deep understanding of the law, and so we should expect errors in translation even if the injunction is flawlessly written, and if we fall into any of these traps, the consequences of drafting the injunction incompletely may be quite severe. So I'm imagining you issue a court order to a robot to do something or not do something, you're kind of in the situation of like the monkey's paw wish, you know, right? Like, you, you mm-hmm. uh-oh, you shouldn't have phrased it that way, now you're in for real trouble. <laughs> or what's the better example of that? Isn't there some movie we were just talking about recently with like the, the, the bad genie who, when you phrase a wish wrong, does, you know, works it out on you in a terrible way? Um, I don't know. Were we talking about Leprechaun or Wishmaster or something? Does Leprechaun grant wishes? I don't remember Leprechaun granting any wishes. Oh, what's he do then? <laughs> I think the only one I've seen is Leprechaun in space. So was, I'm a little foggy on the, the, the logic. Uh, I don't think he grants wishes. He just... He just like rides around on skateboards and punishes people. He he just oh, attacks okay. people who try to get his gold and stuff. And well, but he, leprechauns in general are known for this sort of thing, though. Where they'll oh, are they? If, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, if you're not precise enough, they'll work something in there to um, cheat you out of your your uh, your prize. I'm trying to think. So, like, don't come within 50 feet of the plaintiff, and so the the robot. I don't know. Like, it builds a, a big yardstick made out of human feet or something. Yeah, yeah. It has yeah 50 foot long arms again to lift it them into the air or something to that effect or say the say it's uh you know for some reason schools are just too dangerous and uh this self-driving car uh is not permitted to go within um you know so you know so, so many blocks of an active school and so mm. it calls in a bomb threat on that school uh, <laughs> every day in order to get the kids out so that it can actually go by i don't know something to that effect maybe oh well that reminds me of a funny observation that uh not that this is lawful activity but uh, uh a funny observation that the authors make toward their uh, conclusion they bring up there are cases of uh of crashes with autonomous vehicles where the autonomous vehicle didn't crash into someone, the autonomous vehicle, you could argue, caused a crash, but somebody else ran into the autonomous vehicle because the autonomous vehicle did something that is legal and presumably safe, but unexpected. And examples here would be driving the speed limit in certain areas <laughs> or coming to a complete stop at an intersection. And this is another way that the authors are, are bringing up the idea that uh, uh, examining robot logic is really going to have to cause us to re-examine the way humans interact with the law, because there are cases where people cause problems that lead to harm by obeying the rules. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I think of this all the time, and I imagine most people do when when driving for any long distance, you, because you have the speed limit as it's posted. You mm-hmm. have the speed that the majority of people are driving. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you, you know, you have that sort of 10 mile over zone. Then you have the people who are driving exceedingly fast. Then you have that minimum speed limit that virtually nobody is, is driving 40 miles per hour on the interstate, but it, uh, it's posted. Uh, mm. And therefore, it would be legal to drive 41 miles per hour if you were a robot and weren't in a particular hurry. And perhaps that's, you know, maximum efficiency for your travel. Uh, yeah, there's so many, so many things like that to think about. And I, I think we're probably not even very good at, at guessing until we encounter them through robots how many other situations there are like this in the world mm-hmm. where uh, where you can technically be within the bounds of the law, like you're doing what by the book you're supposed to be doing, but actually it's really dangerous to be doing it that way. Right. So how are you supposed to interrogate a robot's state of mind in, when it comes to stuff like that? But uh, So anyway, this leads to the authors talking about the, the difficulties in, in robots' state of mind evaluation. And they say, quote, robots don't seem to be good targets for rules based on moral blame or state of mind, but they are good at data. So we might consider a legal standard that bases liability on how safe the robot is compared to others of its type. This would be a sort of robotic reasonableness test. That could take the form of a carrot, such as a safe harbor for self-driving cars that are significantly safer than average or significantly safer than human drivers. Or we could use a stick holding robots liable if they lag behind their peers or even shutting down the worst 10% of robots in a category every year. Uh, so I'm not sure if I agree with this, but this was an interesting idea to me. So instead of like trying to to interrogate the underlying logic of a type of autonomous car or robot or whatever, because it's so difficult to try to understand the underlying logic. What if you just compare its outcomes to other machines of the same genre as it or to humans? I mean, you can imagine this working better in the case of something like autonomous cars than you can in, you know, other cases where the robot is essentially introducing a sort of a new genre of agent into the world. But autonomous cars are in many ways going to be roughly equivalent in outcomes to human drivers in, in regular cars. And so would it make more sense to try to understand the reasoning behind each autonomous vehicle's decision-making when it gets into an accident or uh, to compare its behavior to, I don't know, some kind of aggregate or standard of human driving or other autonomous vehicles. Or maybe we just we just tell it, look, most humans drive like selfish bastards, so just go do it. <laughs> do what you got to do. Well, I mean, I would say that there is a downside risk to not taking this stuff seriously enough, which is uh, which is something like that. I mean, something like essentially letting robots go hog wild because they can well be designed and not saying that anybody would be, you know, maliciously going and rubbing their hands together while they make it this case. But, you know, you could imagine a situation where there are more and more robots entering the world where the, uh, the corporate responsibility uh, for them is so diffuse that nobody can locate the one person who's responsible for the robot's behavior. And thus nobody ever really makes the robot, you know, behave morally at all. So robots just sort of like become a new class of superhuman psychopaths that are immune from all consequences. Right. In fact, I would say that is a robot apocalypse scenario I've never seen before done in a movie. It's always like when the robots are terrible to us, it's always like, 
organized. It's always like the, you know, they, okay, they decide humans are a cancer or something. And th- so they're going to wipe us out. What if instead it's just, the problem is just that robots sort of by uh, corporate negligence and distributed responsibility for their behavior among humans, robots just end up being ultimately amoral. And we're flooded with these amoral critters running around all over the place that are pretty smart and really powerful. I guess there are you do see some shades of this in uh, in some futuristic sci-fi genres. I'm particularly thinking of some of the mo- models of, of cyberpunk genre where uh, the, the the corporation model has been uh, has been embraced as the way of understanding the future of AIs. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think I, th- I think for the most part, this this scenario uh, hasn't been as explored as much. We tend to we tend to want to go for the evil overlord or the out of control killbot rather than this. Right? Yeah, you, you want you want an identifiable villain, just like they do in the courts. But yeah, they, sometimes mm-hmm. uh, sometimes corporations or manufacturers can be kind of slippery in in saying like wh- whose thing is this. So I was thinking about all, all this, about the idea of, uh, you know, particularly self-driving cars being like the main example we, we ruminate on with, with this sort of thing. Um, I, I decided to, to look to the book Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark, hmm. um, which uh, is, a, is a really great book, came out uh, what, a couple of years back. And Max Tegmark is a Swedish-American physicist, cosmologist, and machine learning researcher. Uh, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you might remember that I, I briefly interviewed him. I had like a mini interview with him at uh, World Science Festival uh, uh, several years back. Yeah, and uh, I know I've referenced his book, Our Mathematical Universe, in previous episodes. Yeah, so so th- these are these are both books intended for a wide audience. Very very readable. Uh, uh, Life three point does a does a fabulous job of walking the reader through these various scenarios of, uh, uh, in many cases, of, of AI ascendancy and how it could work. And uh, he gets into this this topic of. Um, of legality and um, and and AI and self driving cars. Now he does not make any allusions to Johnny Cab and Total Recall, <laughs> but I'm going to make allusions to Johnny Cab and Total Recall as a way of sort of putting a manic face on self driving cars. How did I get here? <laughs> the door opened. You got in. <laughs> it's sound reason. Yeah. So um, imagine that you're in a self driving Johnny Cab and it wrecks. So the basic question you might ask is, are you responsible for this wreck as the occupant? That seems ridiculous to think so, right? You weren't driving it. You just told it where to go. Um, Are the owners of the Johnny Cab responsible? Now, this seems more reasonable, right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, But again, it runs into a lot of the problems we were just raising there. Yeah. Uh, but Tegmark points out that there is this other option and that American legal scholar David uh, Vladek uh, has pointed out that perhaps it is the Johnny Cab itself that should be responsible. Now, we've been already been discussing a lot of this. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean if a, if a Johnny Cab, if a self-driving vehicle is responsible for the wreck that it is in? What, right. you know, how do we even begin to make sense of that statement? Do, do you take the damages out of the Johnny Cab's bank account? Well, that's the thing. We, we kind of end up getting into that scenario because if the Johnny Cab has responsibilities, then, then Tegmark uh, writes, why not let it own car insurance? Not only would this allow for it to financially handle accidents, it would also potentially serve as a design incentive 
and a purchasing incentive. So the the idea here is the better self-driving cars with better records will qualify for lower premiums. And the less reliable models will have to pay higher premiums. So if the Johnny Cab runs into enough stuff and explodes enough, then that brand of Johnny Cab simply won't be able to take to the streets anymore. Oh, this is interesting. Okay, so in order to... I mean, this is very much the economic model uh, that we were discussing earlier. So when Schwarzenegger hops in and Johnny Cab says, where would you like to go? And he says, drive, just drive anywhere. And he says, I don't know where that is. And so so his incentive to not just like blindly plow forward is how much would it cost if I ran into something when I did that? Yeah, exactly. But uh, but Tegmark points out that the implications of letting a self-driving car own car insurance, it ultimately goes beyond the situation. Because how does the Johnny Cab pay for its insurance policy that, again, it hypothetically owns in this scenario? Right. Should we let it own money in order to do this? Does it have its own bank account like you alluded to earlier? Especially if it's operating as an independent contractor of sorts, perhaps paying back certain percentages or fees to a greater cab company, like maybe that's how it would work. And if it can own money, well, can it also own property? Like perhaps at the very least it rents garage space. Uh, but maybe it owns garage space for itself, um, you know, or a maintenance facility or the tools that work on it. Does it own those as well? Does it own spare parts? Does it own the bottles of water that go inside of itself for its customers? <laughs> Does it own the complimentary wet towels for your head that it keeps on hand? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, if nothing else, it seems like if it owned things, like the more things it owns, the more things that you could potentially um, uh, invoke a penalty upon uh, through the legal system. And if they can own money and property and, again, potentially themselves, then Tegmark takes it a step further. He writes, if this is the case, quote, there's nothing legally stopping smart computers from making money on the stock market and using it to buy online services. Once a computer starts paying humans to work for it, it can accomplish anything that humans can do. Ah, I see. So you might say that even if you're skeptical of an AI's ability to have, say, the emotional and cultural intelligence to uh, to write a popular screenplay or, you know, create a popular movie, it just doesn't get humans well enough to do that. It could at least, if it had its own economic agency, pay humans to do that. Right, right. And um, elsewhere in the book, Tegmark gets into a lot of this, especially the entertainment idea, Mm -hmm. presenting a scenario by which machines like this could gain the entertainment industry in order to um, to ascend to, uh, you know, extreme financial power. A lot of it is just like sort of playing the algorithms right, you know, Uh Uh, like doing corporation stuff and then hiring humans as necessary to to bring that to fruition, you know. I mean, would this be all that different from any of our, like, I don't know, Disney or comic book studios or whatever exists today? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So, you know, we already know the sort of prowess that computers have when it comes to the stock market. Tegmark, you know, points out that, uh, you know, know, we have examples of this in the world already uh, where we're using AI. And he writes that it could lead to a situation where most of the economy is owned and controlled by machines. And this, he warns, is not that crazy, considering that we already live in a world where non-human entities called corporations exert tremendous power and hold tremendous wealth. I think there there is a large amount of overlap between the concept of corporation and the concept of an AI. Yeah. 
And uh, and then there are steps beyond this as well. If, if machines can do all of these things, so if they can, if they can, uh, if, if uh, a machine can own property, if it can potentially own itself, if it can, uh, if it can buy things, if it can invest in the stock market, if it can accumulate financial power, if it can do all of these things, then should they also get the right to vote as well? You know, it's it's potentially paying taxes, does it get to, to vote in addition to that? And then if not, why? And what becomes the, the caveat that determines the right to vote in this scenario? Now, if I understand you right, I, I think uh, you're saying that Tegmark is, is exploring these possibilities as stuff that he thinks might not be as implausible as people would suspect, rather than as stuff where he's like, here's my ideal world. Right, right. He, he's he's saying like, look, you know, this is already where we are. We know what AI can do, and we can easily extrapolate where it might go. These mm-hmm. are the scenarios we should we should potentially be prepared for. In much the same way that nobody nobody really at an intuitive level believes that a corporation is a person, like a like a human being is a person. Uh, you know, it's at least done well enough at convincing the courts that it is a person. So, would you not be able to expect the same coming out of machines that were sophisticated? enough. Right. And convincing the court is a, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's that's another area that uh, Tegmark gets into. Uh, so what does it mean when judges have to potentially judge AIs? Um, would these be specialized judges with technical knowledge and understanding of the, the complex systems involved? Uh, you know, or is it going to be a human judge judging a machine as if it were a human? Um, you know, b- both of these are possibilities. But then here's another idea that Tegmarks discusses at length. Uh, what if we used robo judges? Um, <laughs> and this ultimately goes beyond the idea of using robo judges to judge other robots, but potentially using them to judge uh, humans as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because while human judges have limited ability to understand the technical knowledge of cases, robo judges, uh, Tegmark points out, would in theory have unlimited learning and memory capacity. They could also be copied so there would be no staffing shortages. You need two judges today, we'll just copy and paste, right? Uh, and um, simplification, but, but you know, essentially, uh, once you have one, you can have many. Uh, this way, justice could be cheaper and just maybe a little more just by removing the human equation. Or at least so the machines would argue. <laughs> right. But then the other side of the thing is we've already discussed how human-created AI is susceptible to, to bias. Sure. So we could potentially, you know, cre- we could create a robo-judge, but if we're not, not careful, it could be bugged, it could be hacked, it could be otherwise compromised, or it just might have these various biases that it is, um, that it is using when it's uh, judging humans or machines. And then you'd have to have public trust in such a system as well. So we run into a lot of the same problems we run into when we're talking about trusting the machine to drive us across town. Yeah, like so if a a, a robot judge, even if – now, I'm certainly not granting this because I I don't necessarily believe this was the case. But even if it were true that a robot judge would be better at judging cases than a human and like more fair or more just, you could run into problems with public trust in those kind of judges because, for example, they make the calculations explicit, right? The same Mm -hmm. way we talked about like placing a certain value on a human life. Uh, it's something that we all sort of do, but we don't like to think about it or acknowledge we do it. We just do it at an intuitive level that's sort of hidden mm-hmm. in the dark recesses of the mind and, and, and don't think about it. A machine would have to like put a number on that. And, and for public uh, transparency reasons, that number would probably need to be publicly accessible. Yeah. Uh, another area, and this is, of course, this is another 
topic in robotics that you know we could easily discuss uh, at, at extreme length, but there's uh, robotic surgery to consider. Mm-hmm. You know, while we continue to make great strides in robotic surgery, and in some cases r- the robotic surgery route is indisputably the safest route, there remains a lot of discussion regarding um, you know how robot surgery uh, is um, is progressing, where it's headed, and how malpractice potentially factors into everything. Um, now, d- despite the advances that we've seen, we're not quite at the medical droid level, you know, like the autonomous uh, surgical bot. Uh, but as reported by Dennis Grady in the New York Times just last year, AI coupled with new imaging techniques are already showing promise as a means of diagnosing tumors as accurately as human physicians, but at far greater speed. Um, so uh, it's, it's interesting to to, uh, to think about these advancements, but at the same time realize that particularly in, in AI, we're talking more about AI, uh, I mean, particularly in AI and medicine, we're talking about AI-assisted medicine or AI-assisted surgery. So the human-AI relationship is, in these cases, not one of replacement, but of cooperation, at least for the near term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 I see that. Because, I mean, there are many reasons for that, but one of the, one of the reasons that strikes me is it comes back to a, a perhaps sometimes irrational desire to inflict punishment on a person who has done wrong, even if it doesn't, like, help the person who has been harmed mm-hmm. in the first place. Um, it, the, there, there are certain just, like, intuitions we have, and I think one of them is we, we feel more confident if there is somebody in the loop who would suffer from the consequences of failure – You know, like the, like, it doesn't just help that like, oh no, I I assure you the surgical robot has, you know, strong incentives within its programming, not to fail, not to botch the surgery and take out your, you know, remove one of your vital organs. Yeah. Like on one level, on some level, we want that person to know their career is on the line or their reputation is on the line. You know, I think most people would feel better uh, going under surgery with the knowledge that if the surgeon were to do something bad to you, it's not just enough to know that the surgeon is going to try really hard not to do something bad to you. You also want the like second order guarantee that like if the surgeon were to screw up and take take out one of your vital organs, something bad would happen to them and they would suffer. Hmm. But with a robot, they wouldn't suffer. It's just like, oh, yeah, whoops. I wonder if we end up reaching a point with this in this discussion where, you know, we we're talking about robots hiring people. Do we end up in a, in a position where AIs hire humans, not so much because they need human um, expertise or human skills or human senses, <laughs> but their ability need- to feel pain? <laughs> Yeah, and to be culpable. Like, they need somebody that will, like, essentially, AIs hiring humans to be scapegoats in the system or in their, um, in the, in the, in in their particular uh, job. Uh, So they're like, yeah, we need a human in the loop, not because I need a human in the loop. I can do this by myself. But if something goes wrong, if, uh, you know, then there's always a certain chance that something will happen. I need a human there that will bear the blame. Every robot essentially needs a human co-pilot, even in cases where robots uh, far outperform the humans, just because the human co-pilot has to be there to accept responsibility for failure. Oh, yeah. In the first episode, we talked about the idea of there being like a punchable um, plate on the robot uh-huh. um, for when it for when we feel like we need to punish it. It's like that, except instead of a, a specialized plate on the robot itself, it's just a person that the robot hired, a whipping boy. 
Oh, th- this is so horrible and and so perversely plausible. I I can I can kind of see it. It like in my lifetime I can see it. Well, uh, thanks for the nightmares, Rob. <laughs> well, no, I think we've had plenty of potential nightmares discussed here, but I mean we we shouldn't just focus on the nightmares. I mean, again, to, to be clear. Um, you know, so the idea of self-driving cars, the idea of robot-assisted uh, surgery. I mean, we're ultimately talking about the aim of 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 creating safer practices, of saving sure. human lives. So, uh, you know, it's all it's not all uh, nightmares and uh, and robot hellscapes, but we have to be realistic about the the very complex. Um, scenarios and tasks that we're building things around and unleashing machine intelligence upon. Yeah, I mean, I, I made this clear in uh, in the previous episode. I'm, I'm not like down on things like autonomous vehicles. I mean, ultimately, I think autonomous vehicles are, are probably a good thing. Um, yeah. But I do think it's really important for people to start paying attention to these uh, these unbelievably complicated uh, philosophical, moral, and legal questions that will inevitably arise as uh, more independent and intelligent agents uh, infiltrate our our world. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and close it out. Uh, But if you'd like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find them. You can find our core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays, we tend to do listener mail. On Wednesdays, uh, we tend to bust out an artifact shorty episode. And on Fridays, we do a little Weird House Cinema where we don't really talk about science so much as we just talk about uh, one weird movie or another. And then we have a little rerun on the weekend. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.